Father God, we just thank you um, for bringing Lynn um, to come and preach to us this morning. And I just pray that as we learn more about using what you have given us and using our talents for your kingdom, that you will really speak through Lynn. And that as we hear what you have to say through her, that we will have open ears and open hearts and open minds to what you have to say to us this morning. Amen. I can assume by the feedback and things that everybody can hear me. Yes, <laughs> excellent. Um, right, so let's see if I can press the right button. This is good. Right, parables of the kingdom. Um, in the new NIV, it says parable of the bags of gold. It used to say parable of the talents. Um, in the translation we've just read, it said bags of silver. Just means lots of dosh, basically. Um, So we're talking about Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30, the parable of the talents or the parable of the bags of gold or whatever. And it's very similar to the parable in Luke, which is the parable of the 10 miners. Um, And that the miners are a slightly lesser amount of money than a talent, but nevertheless, it's all about what people do with with the gifts and, and the money that they're given. I mean, we have to remember when we're talking about Jesus and the parables, that he probably said the same parable umpteen times, loads of times. Wherever he travelled, he would preach the same things. Um, You know, and the ones we have in the gospel are the ones that, you know, kind of distillations of what he said. Um, The reading that we had today didn't actually start with the words, the kingdom of heaven is like. But actually both of the, in fact, all of the... um, uh, parables in chapter 25 of Matthew are all about the kingdom of God so they continue one after the other and the first one in that chapter is the wise and foolish virgins with the lamps and everything and this continues on so this is still the kingdom of heaven is like Um, now the thing about this parable is that people have distorted it some churches have distorted it Um, And many rich Western churches have said it's all about investing money, it's about using money that you're given wisely, it's making sure you've got lots of money stashed up and being blessed by God with huge profits. I do not believe that that is what this story is about. The stories of a man who's going on a long journey. Nobody really knows how long it is when he sets off. He probably does, but his servants don't. And he entrusts his property to the servants while he's away. And he trusts them to look after his property in the same way that he would. His property will be treated in the same way as if he was there. That's what you always hope when you let out a house to somebody or something, isn't it? That it'll be still in the same shape when you get it back. In the story, one man is given five talents, one man is given two talents, and they start immediately to do something with what they've been given. And in the time the master was away, the sum they'd been entrusted with had doubled in value. But what about guy number three? I wonder why he was guy number three. Was he guy number three because he heard the master wanted to talk to him and he thought, well, I'll just give it a few minutes, see what happens. So maybe he turned up last because that was the sort of person he was. Um, He was also given one talent. What was going on in his head that he decided to do what he did with it? 
Was he offended because the master had only entrusted him with one talent? Maybe he felt angry with the master because of the way he'd been treated, the way he felt he'd been shamed and treated differently to the other two. Maybe he felt after treatment like that, he owed the master nothing. Maybe he thought, if you only entrust me with one talent, then that is all you're going to get back. Why should I work for you if you're going to treat me like that? His are the perceptions of a twisted, offended, bitter man. This picture that I've chosen is deliberately misleading. At the time of the story, a talent was a weight of gold, or possibly other metal, um, equivalent to about 20 years' wages. That is a lot of money. So while guy number three was thinking he'd been shortchanged, he'd still been given a huge potential wealth to deal with. It just wasn't as much as the, other, as the others had been given. But nevertheless, because of the way he feels in his heart, because of the way he views the whole thing, he turned up last, got the worst, the whole thing, the whole, his whole attitude, he sees the money as a burden rather than an opportunity. He allows that to affect his thinking and his behaviour. The master was away a long time. That's the impression we get from the Bible reading, from the story that Jesus told. Number three had a lot of time to rethink his position. He had a lot of time to turn his situation round. He could have dug it up and decided, actually, I will do something with this. The guy's been gone a while. Maybe, maybe, you know, maybe he looked at the success of the other two and thought, maybe, maybe, just maybe, but he didn't. He didn't turn his situation around. He didn't choose another path. He remained completely entrenched in where he was. He feels sour. He feels hard done to. If he thinks about it at all, he's hugely negative in his mind. Despite the fantastic opportunity he's been offered, he carries on living his life exactly as before. When the master returns, the two have worked with the opportunity they've been given. Can't wait to see the master again. Look what we've done with what you gave us. Their excitement is obvious. We've done this much. We've done that. We've made you twice as much as you had before. We've worked really hard and that's what we've done. And they're rewarded by the master with further opportunity to share their master's happiness and their master's um, general well-being. But guy number three, in the time that the master's been away, he may even have forgotten what he was meant to be doing. Suddenly he's called to give account of what he's been doing while the master was away. Maybe he lags behind a bit. Maybe all the way, on on his way to see the master, he's thinking, yeah, and he's a really bad guy. And yeah, he only gave me this. And what was I supposed to do? And he's, he's a real vicious guy and he, he, he's, he's awful and he, 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 nev- he just takes and he never gives and all that sort of thing. So he's turning this all around in his mind. And maybe he then sees what the others have done with their money and is frightened. What he offers the master is grudging, poorly presented, tarnished. 
It's been in the ground. It's done nothing. What happens in the story is that the master gives his money to one of the other guys and actually gives them all the, the other two guys more responsibility to carry on working in his kingdom. What he says to the guy who hasn't done that, basically the consequences for that guy are to stay living where he's been living. It's not so much a, a punishment as the master saying, and you've got to remember that Jesus uses a lot of hyperbole, a lot of exaggeration in his parables. He's, it's not so much a punishment as the master saying, if that's how you feel, then you can stay living in the joyless place that you've made for yourself. There's no joy where you are. That's your punishment. It's not to be lifted out of that place, but to stay exactly in the place that you've made yourself. You've had lots of opportunity, but you've chosen not to get excited by the opportunities that you've been given. Stay in the dark, terrifying place you've made for yourself. Jesus often used the word Gehenna for this state, which is somewhere along, somewhere along the line that got translated as hell, but it's actually not what we've come to understand as hell. Um, there's an awful lot of baggage that's got a, a, attached to the word hell through the 2,000 years we've had to think of it. Um, and none of that is actually what Jesus is talking about here. In fact, the last 500 years of Christian history have shaped what hell is supposed to be. Uh, quite dramatically, um, in my belief, I think that's incorrect, but other people hold other beliefs. Anyway, Jesus often used the word Gehenna. He doesn't use it here, but he uses it seven times elsewhere in, in Matthew. And basically, Gehenna is the place which is full of darkness and gnashing of teeth and screams and all sorts of things. Um, and Gehenna was actually the terrible rubbish tip just south of Jerusalem. It had an awful history. It had been used for idol worship. It had been used for child sacrifice. And it ultimately, in the time of Jesus, had become a place where dead bodies and ashes and rubbish were thrown. Fires spontaneously broke out as rubbish self-combusted. It was frequented by wild animals. That's hence the scary picture. Um, the gnashing of teeth living on the dead bodies and the rubbish. And the consequences of number three, guy number three's behaviour is that they can't see the joy that the master offers. So he's condemned to continue to live in the loveless, joyless place that he's made for himself. He's condemned to continue living life on the rubbish heap, oblivious to the joy and the way out that the master offers. The only thing that will really change for him, things for him, is a change of heart a recognition of who the master really is. His big problem through all of this is he doesn't know who the master is. The other two recognise the master and what he tries to do in his kingdom and how he, he works. But, but this guy doesn't. He does not recognise who the master is. The thing is, the master does know guy number three intimately. He knows absolutely everything about him. He knows why he's like he is. He knows um, how he was made in the first place, what, what has happened to him during his life that has changed his whole outlook. 
He also knows, the master knows what he should have been capable of. He didn't overburden him, he didn't give him too much to do, but he still gave him lots of opportunity, which he failed to take. So guy number three's punishment is being left exactly as he is. So who is Jesus actually talking to in this parable? Who is he addressing himself to? He's addressing himself to the Pharisees and religious leaders. The problem with the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they tried too hard. They built a fence around the law. They understood exactly where they were with the law. They got it, they understood it, they knew how to do it and they didn't want it to change. Unfortunately, and one of the things that Jesus kept trying to tell them, because they stayed exactly where they were with it, tried to preserve it exactly as it was forever, they'd strangled religious truth and they weren't open to the new opportunities that Jesus was offering. God is always moving and Jesus is constantly teaching that there can be no faith without adventure. But Jesus isn't just talking to the Pharisees and the religious leaders. He's also talking to his own disciples. Jesus' disciples, the ones who followed him, not necessarily just the close 12, but the ones who followed him, they had the gift of Jesus himself. Imagine that. We've had 2,000 years to think about what that could possibly have been like. But there's always a danger when you're on the inside that you can spend all your time enjoying a gift privately, keeping it to yourself. It's like people who buy masterpieces and lock them away just so that only they can see them. What's the joy in that? You need to share it so that everybody can see how beautiful it is. The story that Jesus tells is about making the most of what you've been given and getting on with doing the master's work. Letting the master's joy bubble out of you so you can't stop telling other people about the freedom that Jesus brings. The freedom to get out of that dark, horrible place you're in and move into somewhere else. The reward for getting on with it is the joy of doing even more because once you've seen that, you can't stop sharing it. You know, and we talk about the difficulties of evangelism, how difficult it is, and how it's difficult to talk. Just share in your everyday life. You don't have to do the heavy stuff. Just talk about it. Just behave differently. Behave like you've met Jesus. It's not, you know, hard. You don't need to go to a class about it. I used to do the stuff in, back in my church in Clitheroe, and it was like, oh, it's not that you'd meet somebody in Tesco's, talk to them about the joy that you feel. You know, share something. And the thing about these, both these parables are, the virgins and the, the lamps and this one, he's basically saying to the people who know what he's talking about, get on with it. Don't hang about. You don't know how long you've got. Get on with it.
So what? Right, that deals with the disciples then, it deals with the Pharisees, um, it deals with the guy with the talents. I was fascinated to find out when I looked at the dictionary that, our, and I may be wrong on this, but I couldn't find anything else that said different. Our English word talent seems to be derived from how this, palant, this parable was understood. And a talent is basically a great personal gift, personal attribute that needs to be used. And that's why when we hear the word talent, we don't necessarily think of a huge sum of money, which is what the original meaning was. And the key to this whole parable is understanding the master, God himself. Guy number three didn't understand the abundance that the master gives. All he could see was what he didn't get. He didn't realise there's always more than enough to share. God knows each one of us intimately. He knows what we could be capable of. He's with us. He's alongside each one of us all the time. He's not distant and judging. He's right there with you. He's what we would call sharing the journey. He's there. He knows the tough times. He knows the good times. And he's sharing it all. He sees the opportunities we take and he sees the opportunities we miss. Either because we don't see them, you know, oh, should have done that, but it's gone. Or the ones we choose not to take. Oh, I really should go and talk to so-and-so, but I don't. <laughs> I'm not very brave going and talking to people. If I'm standing on my own, it's because I haven't got the courage to go and join somebody else. But so you can come and take pity on me if you like. <laughs> But God is interesting. See, God knows what I'm like. So sometimes he puts me in situations where I have to go and talk to people. Uh, and sometimes he makes sure I'm not in those situations so I can be used in some other way. God's, John, John is brilliant at breaking down barriers and talking to people. And then I follow on behind and say, hi, my name's Lynn. <laughs> but God is interested in you using the skills and passions you have in his service. I've met many, many Christians over the years who have agonised over where God wants them to work and what he wants them to do. The answer is surprisingly simple. You don't need to keep locking yourself away until you're clear what God's plan is. God wants you to be you, your loves, with your loves, your likes and passions. And he also recognises the stuff you're not really interested in and the stuff you're a bit scared to do. God isn't really interested in making you do the stuff you hate. He empowers you to use the stuff you are passionate about, the stuff you have to talk to people about, the stuff you can't hold in because you're so enthusiastic. I asked Arthur what his, um, what his passion was, and he said Liverpool Football Club, amongst other things. But, you know, if you're a Liverpool fan, if you've, the mo any opportunity you get, you're talking about the match. That's what it's about. God uses that stuff. And every conversation can lead somewhere else. If you start using that stuff in God's service, then nothing can hold you back from serving him. A few years ago, I spoke to a young woman who was in what I call the paralysis of analysis about what she should do to serve God. Very sincere. My question is always, when I hear people spending time trying to work out what God wants them to, 
What are you passionate about? Her eyes lit up. It was a, I had not seen her eyes light up like that for weeks. I love dance and I love art. Well, find a way to serve God through the things you're passionate about. And don't go to a Christian art group or a Christian dancing group. Go to one that has people in who don't know Jesus. That's where you go. It's no use surrounding yourself with people who are a holy huddle who already know all this stuff. You need to talk to the people who don't. The people who can see that you'd live differently, you make different choices to them. And if you're lucky, you'll get a chance to talk to them about it. I have to say, this particular individual didn't look particularly convinced. That's too easy to go and do the stuff I like. I should stay locked in my room until I'm sure God wants, knows what I want to do. Well, I'm sure what, what God wants me to do. But get to know the people through the stuff you love. If you only go to Christian things, as I say, how are you ever going to talk to anybody else about the love of God and what Jesus did? Lucy, who's not here this morning, I've picked two, two examples because I might be wrong, but as far as I know, the only two real outreaches we're doing at the moment have been set up by two people who had a passion. Lucy loves crafts. Yes, the craft group was working before, but that was before lockdown. And she could not wait for the Tuesday craft group to restart after lockdown. You might think, well, I'm not really into crafts. <laughs> I can actually do quite a lot of crafts, actually, but I've been hiding my light under a bushel. Um, but the craft group isn't just about crafts, though. It's about love and support and conversation and talking and sitting down next to people as well. John had a passion for feeding people who were struggling through it during the pandemic when our church was completely closed otherwise. The open table on a Friday doesn't just feed people. It's about love and support and acceptance and the chance to talk. That's what it's about. It's not just, here's a ton of can take baked beans. That's not what happens there. It's something completely different. So you get the idea. You can use your passions, whatever they are, to spread the joy of God's freedom with people and to show them a different way of living. Demonstrate it in your own lives. And so these are the only... The, these, are, these are just two examples, but they're the only things I know that we specifically set up in terms of reaching out to people that, who would not otherwise come to this church. So just think about that. Think about what you have to offer God. Think about what your passions are. Think about what you enjoy doing. Think of anything and start doing it with people. Talk to people about it, you know. Even if you talk to them in Tesco's queue about, or even tell them about our craft group in Tesco's queue, that's something. Um, so I just think... Perhaps at the end, we can just think quietly about the stuff that we could offer God. If we're not already doing it, we might already be doing it. Um, so just think about the stuff that we could offer God. And I just want to end with a prayer. Dear Lord God, 
we can all feel that we've got nothing to offer, that we're not doing enough, that we're weighed down by responsibility. Help us to remember that serving you is meant to be a joy. Help us to reconnect with the stuff that we're passionate about, that we can share with other people. Help us to think about how we can use our passions to meet people who desperately, desperately need to know about the freedom that you offer. Help us to find ways to share life in all its fullness that you promised. Amen. Thank you, Lynn.